Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 2. We'll study together verses 5 through 11. From Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20, we have Paul's great discourse on the doctrine of sin. And one of the great emphases in this section is our need of Christ. And so as Paul progresses through this in his argumentation about the state of our souls, he is trying to commit to us this significant reality that we are in ourselves guilty and subjects of the wrath of a righteous God. And we need a Savior. And so as we take this up together, please be mindful that this is a portion of a larger section of Paul's teaching that primarily emphasizes this. Let us read God's word together. Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is God's word. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be great tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Thus far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us understanding. Oh Lord, that we would understand your judgment, O Lord, that we would understand ourselves and that, Lord, we would understand our need for Christ. O Lord, help us to not sit above your word, that we might look down upon it and read onto it anything of ourselves or our desires. O Father, but help us to sit beneath it, to receive it spiritually. O Lord, to receive it personally and to be conformed by it. O Father in heaven, give clarity to your word and accuracy. O Father, and according to your mercy, brevity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are you before the Lord? Given the question 
of his side upon your soul? How would he regard you? Does he regard you as you regard you? Maybe I should ask this question. Who are you to you? If I were to say, are you a good person? Would you say yes? Would you begin to review all of the things that you've done in this week or the weeks previous or maybe today? The moment when you thought of being angry but you told yourself, no, I'll press it down in myself. Or maybe you think of yourself and you say, yes, I'm a good and a moral person. And according to external morality, you are. You've done the things that ought to be done. Good things. Things that benefit your neighbor. Things that honor God. But who are you before the discriminating and searching eye of God? He views souls. Something that has no form. He can peer into the depths of who you are and he and he alone can judge rightly. You and I, if we judge one another, we judge hypocritically. You and I, if we judge our own hearts, we judge inaccurately. But the Lord judges righteously. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture, verses 5 through 11... Divine judgment, divine judgment is the topic. In verses 6 through 8 and also verse 11, we'll see firstly the character of divine judgment. 6 through 8 and also 11, the character of divine judgment. In verses 9 and 10, the consequences of of divine judgment, the consequences of divine judgment. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, which we'll read when we get to it, the gospel of divine judgment. The gospel of divine judgment. Last we were together, we studied verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, chapter 2. And one of the great struggles, I think, in many portions of the Scripture, but specifically with the book of Romans, is that sermons have an allotted time. And you have only a significant portion of your attention that can be given at any given time. And some days I think, at least judging by eyes, that I push that all the way to the edge with 45-minute sermons sometimes regrettably longer. And so we dice up the text of Scripture and we try to make good divisions, things that we can go and understand and exposit and take away from, but at times also we divide right in the middle of a thing that really shouldn't be divided. I think maybe if we were to preach this just as it could be or should be preached, it'd be like a two and a half hour sermon, which you don't want and I don't think I can produce. But we come back And we take up verse 5 again, because verse 5 is intimately connected to the section with which we are in. Your English translation, like mine, may, or if you're reading in German, may have a paragraph division. It shouldn't. There's no paragraph division there. There's not even a period uh, between verses 5 and 6 in the original. These are connected and contextually uh, bound together. 
And this is intimately important because if you take uh, verses 6 through 11 and you pull them out of their context, they sound as if they're teaching justification or salvation by works. But they're not. They're absolutely not. And I hope to prove that to you, that this is a passage about the judgment of God. The judgment of God rather than the justification of souls. Because in verse 5, Paul, as he connects then to verse 6, this exposition of verse 5, he presumes a thing. In fact, he positively states it. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What does he presume and what does he positively state? The sinfulness of the hearts of those who read his letter. He presumes that they are hardened. He presumes that they are not repentant. And states it as a fact. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, he understands that there is a judgment day. And he is saying to those who are his readers, you will be judged according to the sins of your heart. That's where he then goes in verse 6 to explain the grounds of the judgment of God. That's the text. That's the emphasis. Because Paul expects that his hearers will simply say, You don't know me. How could I be judged and on what grounds will anybody judge me? And so we have this exposition. Of the judgment of God. The inner working of the judgments of God. As he considers the hearts, the souls, in fact the works of his creatures. So verse 5 is the context for verse 6. And in verse 6 we get what I believe is an expression of the character of divine judgment. So look at it with me. He will render to each one according to his works. He will render according to each one, or he will render to each one according to his works. Now, you could read that and just pass right by it. You could read it and reject it. This isn't uh, a very popular verse of Scripture according to the review of people today. It's not very tolerant. People don't like others to be judgy of themselves. In fact, people get awfully offended about just about anything today that they may feel judged or discriminated against concerning. But in verse 6, he is God. And the first character of divine judgment that Paul enumerates to us is this. That it is certain. That it is certain. 
It will happen. He will render to each one according to his works. The future, indicative, it's coming. A day when the Lord in his wrath will look upon his creatures and judge the hearts of his human beings who were made in his image and after his likeness and who sinned and provoked him to his face. A day is coming where he will judge them. And why do I emphasize and why does Paul emphasize the certainty of the future judgment of all people? Because you and I don't want to believe it. You and I want to live under a myth where we think to ourselves that God is at least as forgetful as we are. He's at least as civilly tolerant as the world around us is. He's a God who has no claws, no wrath, no weapons of warfare. He's soft. He's theoretical. He's transcendent. But he's certainly not a God who will ever have personal certain dealings with me and what I do or what I don't do. And that's a safe place, isn't it, to be? If you're engaged in a sin, a sin that you enjoy, or a sin that you have been engaged in in the past, you want to think to yourself, it'll never come before scrutiny. No one knows. My wife doesn't know. My husband doesn't know. My mother, my father, they don't know. The members of this church or that church, they don't know. My coworkers, they don't know. Even the internet doesn't know, and they know everything. Aren't they all listening to us in our pockets from the cell phone or something like that? Nobody knows. It's a secret sin. It's something that's down deep. It'll never come to light. Well, Paul says, according to the judgment of God, it will be put under scrutiny it will bear the weight of his judgment he will render to each according to his works what is he judging what you do what you do the operations of the heart and of the mind and one of the things that I want to encourage you to understand is that this has direct relationship with the character of God himself essentially he is a transcendent God whose eye peers through all things through all time and who sees everything He sees us in the inclination of our sin. He sees us in our sin. He sees us in the inclination to do good, even good, corrupted by a sinful heart. Nothing can be hid from God. But there's also the character of the holiness of God. That if he is just and if he is righteous, no sin may remain in his presence. Judgment is certain. 
It will come. There is a day. It's not theoretical. Though you may not know it, he knows the day. And it will come where he views the hearts of men. And it will be a day of wrath. It will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of revelation. The revelation of who we really are and then also who he is as a holy God. Have you come to grips with that? Or maybe you say, ah, I don't need to listen to any of that. That won't really happen. But the Bible says it will. And this is God's word and none of it falls to the ground unfulfilled. And you may even think maybe you're just reading that differently, Pastor. Is that really what this passage means? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. It's certain. A second characteristic of the judgment of God is that it is personal. I think at times we like to imagine the great acts of the Lord, his decrees, where he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Or maybe his creation where all things fall, fall out according to his creative providence coming into existence by a word spoken. That there are these general things that happen, but that's not the character of his justice and of his judgment. Rather, the passage that we have here in verse 6, he will render to each one, to every person, According to his personal, his individual works. Because you see, I think there's another rock that we like to hide under, right? And it's, it's really the strength in numbers trope, isn't it? If God is a lion and I am a zebra, let me blend in amongst the zebras. If he can search me out and find me, let me just put on some camouflage and hide into the mass. He'll overlook me. Or maybe if his judgment comes, it'll be outbalanced and it won't be personal, but the, the text doesn't, doesn't reflect that. It's telling you very personally where you're sitting this morning that your God will judge your soul. He's going to look at your actions. Your words, your thoughts, the inclinations of your heart. He will view you personally and not severally. He will view you individually and will judge you according to what you, you have done. And he'll do the same for me. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Psalm 62, 12. 
To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, behold, we didn't know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Did Jesus teach this? Yes. For the Son of Man, Matthew 16, 27, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John 5, 27 through 29 And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's personal. How do you mind the things you do? Do you tremble before the Lord because of them? And do you run from sin and unto him? The third characteristic of the judgment of God reflected here, Romans chapter 2, is that it is fair. It's fair. Fair. It's equitable. He will render to each one according to his works. You're going to get what you deserve. That's what the passage says. It's according to what you did and what I've done and what each individual person has done. That's where his judgment is derived and that's the standard he is judging us by is what we do against the backdrop of his holiness. You go on in verse 7 and you read, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Good. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, evil. Heaven and hell, according to the things, the deeds of humanity. This is the judgment of God. Now, some of you may say, is it fair? Well, if we were to take this and expand this into an analogy, if you're in life and you do a job, don't you want to get paid for it? Of course you do. If someone offends you, maybe they hit your car because of their poor decisions. They've been drinking or however. You want them to pay the actual cost of the damage that they have done and have punishment that's according to it. Receiving what you have done. You go forward in verse 10, or sorry, verse 11. And you have the testimony of the passage of Scripture. God shows no partiality. 
Because, you know, who's Paul writing to in chapter 2? He's begun to touch upon the religious people. He's begun to touch upon Jewish Christians who've lived in a long line of the works of religion, of a law that's very defined. And they would simply say, not only this fact, we're God's covenant people. We're special. We stand in a different uh, standing before him. Look at all of what we've done. A 35th generation Jew of the house of Benjamin or Judah in good standing. Paul says, Jesus says, the psalmist says, the Proverbs writers say, it's according to what you've done. God will judge you on the grounds of what you've done. He will look at the things that you've done, your works, your deeds. It'll be fair. It'll be equitable. And for those who have done good, they will inherit what? Eternal life and blessing. And those who have done evil, what will they inherit? Fury and wrath, tribulation and distress. And if you're sitting in your seat, you're probably thinking, well, I've never heard this kind of thing preached in this way in a church. Because, Pastor, you've told me that I'm sinful. That's been the great emphasis thus far. I accept that I'm sinful, and now you're telling me I'm going to be judged according to my works. Do you feel like you're in a box? Like you're in a tight place, backed into a corner. Like it's a, it's a desperate situation. I'm told that I can sin and only sin, and that I'm a sinful person, that I'm guilty, and that then God is going to judge me because of what I've done. You really need a Savior, don't you? You really need someone else's good works, don't you? If God really sees that about who you are, if you really admit that about who you are, and if I do about who I am, we must have a Savior. And so we go on in the passage of Scripture And we read that not only does the Lord judge according to our works and then give according to the things that we've done or or pour out wrath according to them. In verses 9 and 10, the consequences of divine judgment are then expressed. Let's read it together. There will be tribulation and distress. For every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to every person. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew and also to the Greek. And maybe this is another rock that we try to hide under. This is another uh, false fortification, a a castle, or a defense that we put up around ourselves. We say, yes, God judges, yes, God sees, but God doesn't extend his arm and won't. I'll never get punished for what I've done. That's not what this says. And you say, well, it just sounds like a lot of law. Yes, it does. But the thing that's being told is simply this. That the Lord will extend his hand of blessing to any 
who are righteous in his sight. For those who have sought glory and honor and immortality, they will have eternal life. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered the eternal consequences of the things you do, the things you say, the things you think, the deeds of the hands or the deeds of the mind and heart? Have you thought about this? Is this something that enters into your daily life? And if you simply ask the question, am I seeking the things of heaven, the glory of God? You may come in every Sunday and sit in our services and you think, here we go. These old dead songs from those old dead people that sounds a whole lot different than all of our culture. These are hard to sing, Pastor. The only one that really enjoys singing these are you. And that may be the case, but I do enjoy singing them. Or maybe you think, well, you know, the people in the church, they're nice people, but really they're not really real people. And the relationships that I have with them and the relationship that I have with the church, well, it's, it's a Sunday thing. But you know, on Monday through Friday or Saturday, if, if I see them on the street, it'll be a nice, hey, how are you? It's good to see you, but not a real relationship. And there's certainly not any of that stuff, like all that prayer that happens on Sunday. That doesn't happen on every other day of the week. I'm not going to pursue those things. I'm a busy person. Of course, God knows I love him. I go to church on Sunday. But on Monday through Saturday, where's the heart? Well, it's evidenced in your deeds. It's evidenced in your time, yes, in prayer, or no, not in prayer. Your time, yes, in holy pursuit of Jesus, or no, in pursuit of the world. The things on your lips, the things on your minds, and the things that you pursue. How do you know the heart of a man when you look for the fruits of the heart in the things that he does? Our deeds have real and eternal consequences, and that's what we're being told here. It's like like striking a bell with a hammer, and it's loud, and they go out, and the, the sound waves continue to penetrate until they escape us and are far off. One of the things that we've come to find out in our new home, we didn't think about it when we uh, began to move in, is that we live directly across from a Roman Catholic church that has a bell tower with lots of bells. Every morning at 7 a.m., the queen is getting married, and they go off, and they go off for five minutes. And if the children are not awake, they're about to be, and if they're not in my bed, they're about to be. Those bells have consequences. The things that we do have consequences. They have consequences before the face of God. The Lord is not indifferent to the things we do. For believers and for those who don't know Christ all the same, the Lord views the things that we've done. And you say, well, pastor, I'm back in that corner again. I'm in that desperate place again. This doesn't make me comfortable, Pastor. This sounds a lot like law again. I don't know, Pastor. Sounds harsh. Do you feel like you need a Savior? We need a Savior. 
If he judges my works, he will judge me rightly, and he will pour out wrath against the things that I've done. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. I'm in that group. I need a Savior. According to the law, the Ten Commandments of God have broken everyone in thought, word, or deed. In the mind or in the heart. Or with my hands or with my words. I need a Savior. The consequences of the judgment of God are heaven and blessedness. Or wrath and punishment and hell. Have you considered this? You will give an account and there will be a response to that account. And we will press on the gospel of divine judgment. And obviously you know that pastor, there's got to be some ray of light, but it's hard to see it, right? We're Protestants. We are people of grace. And you're saying to yourself, how do we reconcile this? This is clearly the scripture. You've overwhelmed us with cited scriptures that all say the same thing. Old Testament, New Testament, wisdom literature, uh, prophecy, uh, the mouth of Jesus, and now the mouth of the apostle. How does this, how can I reconcile this? How can the man, how can the man who wrote Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, who wrote our assurance of pardon, also write Romans chapter 2, 5 through 11. Do you remember? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Is Paul inconsistent? Is he contradicting himself? No. You say, but pastor, how do you make that distinction? And it's this. He's talking about the judgment of God. Not justification. Where a man is declared righteous. Where a man is declared not guilty. He's talking about the judgment of God. Where the Lord sees the souls of humanity. And I want to commit to you this morning that the judgment of God is an essential doctrine Of the gospel of Jesus. There is a gospel even in this. And you say, well, pastor, it just looks like a bunch of law. Well, let me say it to you like this. Friends, you and I are not justified on the account of our works. We are judged on account of our works. We're not made righteous on the account of our works because what have we got that could make us righteous in them? Nothing. The inclination of the thoughts of the heart of men is only evil and evil continually. But he does judge. We are judged according to our works. We're not justified on account of our works, but we are justified, however, on the account of the works of someone else, aren't we? On the account of the work of Jesus. And you say, what are you talking about? 
without this verse, it cannot hold up that Jesus has anything to give you or that you have any need to receive it. This tells you simply this, God will review everything you think or do, all of it. And if you're honest about yourself, you'll simply say all of it is tainted and in every way corrupted by sin. All of it. And you say, oh man, that's terrible because it means I'm getting wrath. It means I'm in a terrible place. This passage also simply says that the Lord reviews and judges even the heart of his eternal son wrapped in flesh. I judged him every single day, every single day, all the way to the cross of his deeds and his obedience on his seeking glory, honor, and immortality. That Jesus himself in every way has been judged according to the righteous standard of God and has been proclaimed as righteous and holy. His works, His obedience purchase our redemption. And apart from what He has done and has kept, you and I have no hope to receive anything. You see here in verse 7, there's a promise that if anybody would do what Jesus did, He would receive what you and I need the very most, eternal life. You see, if you don't have this passage of Scripture, you and I simply don't need Jesus. We just don't. If you're never judged according to your works, you're never guilty. You're never subject to wrath. You're never subject to the danger of God. You don't have anything to worry about. You're just going to somehow escape it. You don't need a cross. You just need a forgetful God. The reality is that you are judged and God views every sin and every rebellion of our hearts. And the gospel says this, all of that judgment of your guilt and my guilt, if we believe in Jesus, he lays upon his son. And that Jesus bears the guilt of your and my punishment that is owed to us because we have been judged him and that on the cross Jesus receives our judgment and our punishment fully it's poured out completely the cup is turned over and the prince drinks every single drop of its poison there's nothing left and as he's been judged as righteous All of his goodness, all of his blessedness, all of his eternal life, all of his sonship is then freely offered to any who will receive him. That's the gospel. That's justification by faith and the reception of his righteousness by the works of Jesus. You see, this isn't a competing doctrine to the gospel. It's absolutely essential. And so I want to say to you, friend, will you receive the Savior that you're so desperately in need of? The only righteous one who freely gave himself as a sacrifice to atone for sin 
to bear up your guilt and my guilt and who paid for us at the cost of his blood that we would freely and really be reconciled to a holy God. Receive him. It's simple. Justification, being made righteous, is by faith in Jesus alone. Not according to works, so that no man may boast. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of the scriptures. Lord, how they challenge us, O oh Lord, how they press us and how they reveal to us the depths of who we are. And also the wonder and the glory of who you are. O Lord in heaven, have your way with us. O Lord, pour out your Son upon us. O Lord, give us obedient hearts and faithful hearts to receive him, the one who has done what we cannot do. The one who died for us. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.